Hey, it's episode number four of Presentable, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today on the show is Vice President for Product Design at Facebook, Margaret Gold Stewart. She and I worked together many years ago, and we discuss how design leadership has changed in that time. We also discuss the importance of designers in business decisions and how to think about design careers today. So let's get right to it. You have a good radio voice. Do I really? I had no idea. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you saying that. I have a very uh, fancy microphone. It's going to... That, and, and that's what I'll attribute it to. It's just the gear. It's just the technology <laughs> makes it good. Yeah. The problem is I already know what you look like. So there's not the big reveal of the DJ. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, let's see. The last time I uh, hung out with you, oh, we should just go ahead and, and do this and yeah. just, you know, yeah. say that uh, we were very fortunate. We both got uh, trips over to Stockholm and we gave a, we both gave talks at the, is it, Business to buttons or buttons to business? I can't remember now. I think it's buttons to business. That probably makes no business to buttons. Oh my god, we should know know that. They both make sense. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I bet they've registered both domain names, so it's probably fine. But it was a great conference, Um, and um, and since we're going all in on this, we both got to hang out with Al Gore. So that was cool. I know that was amazing. But uh, while we were doing that, you were talking about a bunch of change that was happening, kind of to your job, like you were getting some more people that were going to report to you and just what's your, what's your title now? So my title is vice president of product design at Ah, Facebook. That sounds great. Um, Yeah. I like it. Yes, it is. It's, um, it's, it's nice. So I think a lot of the companies, the larger tech companies have getting more kind of senior design executives, which is exciting to see. And, you know, that the opportunities are there to have the kind of impact that warrants that title is, I think, great for everyone in these disciplines. So let me, I totally agree. Let me ask you a question. What does product design mean in that context? (laughs) Uh, Well, it's funny, you know, well, you and I have, um, this is not our first time at the rodeo, Jeff. So (laughs) (laughs) we'll get to that. We'll go back in history here in a little bit. I know the name of the discipline that I think that I have been doing for a while just seems to change every five to seven years. So I've become a bit detached. Um, you know, it evolved from website design to user experience design, Mm -hmm. interaction design. Now it's product design. I like product design because it gets beyond the like, limitations of a specific medium or, you know, thinking about it as having to do with, you know, a a particular time or place and that really you're trying to create experiences for people. And I think that's the way that Facebook looks at it. I also like the fact that it's not user experience anymore because I think it's everyone's job to do user experience. Um, engineers, user experience, uh, salespeople user experience. Yeah. And, and the title itself was a little wonky, you know, a little sort of like we have this discipline and it's based on a bunch of science and research. And, um, and I, I never thought fully, fully captured the full breadth of what we did. Yeah. And I think too, you know, it was a transitional thing, you know, at each stage we're educating ourselves and our colleagues and the world about what we can do with technology and, you know, how we can improve, hopefully improve people's lives or the way that they work and live. And, you know, so it's all a work in progress, um, not just the products, but 
the craft of what we do and how we think and talk about it, how we collaborate together. That's exciting to me. So I don't, I don't mind that my title keeps changing. <laughs> no, no. And you know what? I think so product design at, at, at the basic level is, is a good sort of disambiguation from like marketing design, right? Where I think yeah. a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of design, especially on the web sort of came from that side of the house. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I don't know, I get the connotation when we say product design now that it's much more focused on how it works rather than how it looks. And I think yeah. people, I think people yeah. have that level of understanding and, and even respect for it now. So, so well done. Good title. Yeah. Thank you. I, I mean, I think fundamentally it, it has to start with what problem are you, try, are you trying to solve for whom? And is it a problem that is truly worth solving relative to the other problems you could be solving? <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, if you start with that foundation, you dramatically increase your chances of having impact that matters in the world. So I'm glad that the orientation is around the product and not just, you know, how it's, you know, on, you know, how we execute on that problem, which is also critical, obviously, but, you know, you can polish something as much as you want, but if you're not solving something that is, you know, fundamental to people's lives or work, um, it's not going to have the impact that you may want. Do you get the chance to get in there and solve some problems? Like, like my, with my own career, I, I, I could map the the different ways that I got to express design to the level of responsibility I had. Mm. Meaning at, w- at one point I was in Photoshop, right? And, and actually churning, like solving problems at that level and churning them out. And then I sort of moved into more wireframing kind of stuff with, I used OmniGraffle at the time, but it eventually ended up to just whiteboards. Uh, and then uh, honestly, for a while there, Excel spreadsheets was the way that I got to practice design, you know, and that I was a hundred percent a manager and it was budgets and resourcing and prioritization was the only thing that I was focused on. I'm just wondering if, if yeah. at the, at the level you're at now at Facebook, which, which sounds really high up, you know, like you, uh, you must have a lot of people underneath you and a lot of those management as opposed to craft responsibilities. Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting journey over the past um, number of years to figure out how my role evolves and where I can add the most value. I currently see my role as creating the conditions for great work to be done and primarily design and research, but also for engineering, product management, marketing, um, because I think when you're a leader, you need to look beyond the health of your own organization and, and take responsibility more generally for all of the inputs that can create like a better or worse environment for good work to be done. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is designing an organization <laughs> and a way of working is, you know, we, we talk about it internally as, you know, the, the organization as a product and being really intentional about that and caring about the health of the organization and, and how it's growing and, um, you know, figuring out um, the best ways to set it up for success. And, and so that, I think, is a big chunk of it. I think the other thing that I've been heavily involved in over the past few years, specifically at Facebook, is the design of narratives about the work. And the storytelling, you know, and you and I know this, design, a huge portion of what we do as designers is we tell stories. And, you know, there were a lot of stories that needed to be crafted around designing for businesses for Facebook. So, you know, really um, figuring out how to tell stories that excite people about the opportunities, help them understand how 
designing tools that people use for work differs from tools they may use for their own personal enjoyment. Um, and you know this from the work that you did at Adobe, like, you know, when people rely on things for their livelihood, their relationship to those products is very different. And, you know, getting people excited to do that, finding the people who are excited about that, it, it requires storytelling both inside and outside the company. And so that's a lot of what I put, you know, my energy into over the past few years, in addition to telling a story of how design can really make us think differently about how we do product development and, you know, bringing our whole cross-functional organization through a process of overhauling all of our tools so that they're dramatically easier to use and have, you know, create better outcomes for businesses. So I would say that, you know, I don't do hands-on design work anymore at the pixel level. Um, I'm keenly interested in making sure that that work goes well but I'm lucky in that I have an exceptional leadership team that, you know, is fully engaged in that work. And that provides me the time to be thinking more about how can I tell a story um, about the work that makes people proud to do it, gives them the right compass to put, you know, send them in the right direction and, you know, help the outside world understand what we're trying to accomplish. And that's a really interesting space to be in. Um, it's, it's uh, it's definitely been a while since I've <laughs> since I've built prototypes, and I part of me misses that. You know, like I think when you're a maker, I think all humans are makers. A bunch of people get that beaten out of them in school, yeah. um, but then there's like super makers. <laughs> we all have almost like a like a like an like, I don't want to say pathological need to create because <laughs> that sounds bad. But, you know, there's, there's this creative energy that is going to go somewhere. And a lot of that gets fed by my work in developing the organization and the practice of design. And then I look for stuff outside work to do things with my hands to make things. Because I, I think when you are a creative person and you feel that need to make, if you don't find an outlet, you will slowly go insane. <laughs> <laughs> like what? What are you doing? As a great example, this is embarrassing. This past weekend, my neighborhood has an amazing 4th of July parade every year. And this year, I signed up to make the ribbons, which I thought was going to be like fun, but not a huge job. And then I get the email from the organizer and she was like, okay, so we need 180 ribbons for all the parade participants. And I was like, oh my God. Um, so I was making ribbons all weekend. I had my glue gun out. I was going to Michael's. I was like super excited. So when we say practicing our craft, it is literally you're doing crafts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing crafts, but I was really proud because the mayor of Palo Alto wore my custom designed 4th of July ribbon in the parade. And he loved it so much that he carefully took it off afterwards and said, can you save this so I can wear it again next year? Oh, that's and I felt pretty good about that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. You're getting user feedback. It's great. <laughs> I am. I am. Focus group of one. And he was stoked. So, uh, no, I, I think in all seriousness, I, I think whether it's to break yourself out of, you know, the echo chambers we put ourselves in when we're doing really intense work in small, fast moving teams, or if you're in a leadership role where you don't get to do hands on work, finding those creative outlets is hugely important. You know, whether it's something related to work, you know, we have the analog research laboratory here at Facebook where we can do printmaking and there's a woodworking shop, you know 
finding opportunities like that, or it could be even outside of work, you know, doing photography or whatever, like we're, we're creative souls. And so as you get into management and you don't do as much hands-on work, it's just really important to keep that part of you alive because you bring it back to work. Um, and you, and you, you stay empathetic and relevant to the people in your team who are really carrying the, carrying the heavy load. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and getting back to what you were saying about, um, storytelling is, is you're right. I did a, a ton of that in frankly, most of the jobs that I've had. And, and to me, it was, it's not like I'm sitting down and writing a script. When we talk about storytelling, to me, it's always very visual. Mm-hmm. It is almost always me standing in front of a picture of what the product will look like in the future and saying, this is the direction we should go or some kind of a diagram or framework saying this is how we're thinking about the business now and this is the experience that we want to create for people and here's where they intersect and stuff like that and i find that enormously creative even if it's not designing those individual screens anymore so much as stringing them together in an order that makes sense to people and gets them super motivated to well depending if, yeah. if if you're internal to like come on team let's go do this or if you're external hey world this is what we're all about yeah. And I think the other thing too, that I think we probably naturally do, and we assume that other people don't do it as well, but we find out as we get older, oh no, this is actually a really valuable, unique skill is the humanization that we bring to those stories. So it's not just about telling a story of something that's technically amazing or that's doing really well in terms of generating revenue, both of which are really exciting, but to tell the story of how this can impact people's lives. Now, good example of that is I'm working on, you know, a lot of my team works on the ad side of Facebook. Obviously, we care a lot about making, you know, a strong, sustainable business. But there's a story around the impact that our products have in terms of worldwide economic development and job creation that is really important and inspiring because, it means that we're not just, you know, quote, funding the mission of Facebook, but we are also an intrinsic part of the mission of Facebook. And that you cannot make the world open and connected if people are underemployed and they can't feed their families. Right. So that's that, that kind of storytelling that really brings together, here's what the technology is doing, here's what, it doing for, here's what it's doing for Facebook's business and our business partners, but here's what it's doing in the world to address societal problems that we really care about and are an intrinsic part of the Facebook mission. That's a story that could come from anywhere, but is the kind of storytelling that I really enjoy doing that I think designers and researchers are particularly well suited to kind of bring to the world. Uh, And you do it really well. I'm going to put a link to the TED talk that you gave in the show notes for this uh, episode where you talk about that. Well, you talk about that very specifically, right? How how the work that you're doing is creating essentially these whole micro industries in other parts of the world. And I thought that was incredibly impressive. Yeah. I mean, what's exciting about it is it just enables a much more diverse set of voices and people and small businesses to flourish and to be competitive in, in these marketplaces. And that's, that's great for local communities. It's, it's great in terms of us understanding how interesting and diverse the world is. Um, it's just, I think it's one of the most exciting parts of, of the work that we do. This week's episode of Presentable is brought to you by FreshBooks. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a really good chance that you're a designer. And that means you probably have done some freelance work. 
I have myself, and I'll tell you what, I always loved doing the work, and I really enjoyed getting paid, but it was that bit in the middle that drove me crazy, having to send out invoices to my clients, get them to pay me, follow up when they didn't. It was a nightmare. Well, FreshBooks are on a mission to help small business owners save time and avoid stress that comes from running their businesses. And that all starts with pain-free invoicing. FreshBooks has created a super intuitive tool that makes creating and sending invoices totally simple. It takes just 30 seconds to create and send an invoice, and you can add your company logo for that extra professionalism for the way you want your invoices to look. FreshBooks will give your clients tons of ways to pay you. They allow you to receive payments by credit card and integrate with services like PayPal, and this can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. In fact, FreshBook customers get paid up to five times faster on average. And this part is really great that you can see whether or not your client has looked at the invoice. So no more excuses, no lost invoice, and you can set up an automatic late payment reminder as well. So they just keep getting the email saying, hey, my invoice, how about it? And that's just the invoicing. FreshBooks has a lot of other features to help you keep organized. You can easily keep track of your expenses. And if you're in the US, you can automatically import your bank transactions for easy reconciliation. They have great reports. You can easily see who owes you what. Tons of third-party integrations. They do time tracking. They have amazing customer support. Getting started on FreshBooks is extremely simple. You don't really have to be a numbers person at all. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day free trial to listeners of this show. No credit card required. To claim your 30 days of unrestricted use, go to freshbooks.com slash presentable. That's freshbooks.com slash presentable. And when you sign up, please enter presentable in the how you heard about us section so FreshBooks knows you came from this show. Thank you so much to FreshBooks for sponsoring presentable and Relay FM. You and I started out first uh, working together um, at a company called Lycos. And, uh, and we, had both, we had both come there via acquisition. You were at uh, Tripod, I was at Wired, um, Hotwired, the, the digital side of Wired Magazine. And, um, and you had already sort of started that, uh, uh, that, that management, leadership, storytelling part of your career, even there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I started managing pretty early on at Tripod uh, and, you know, trying to figure out, I mean, this was back when we were just inventing the discipline as we were going along, as we still are to some degree, but it's come a long way since sure. then. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think I felt a natural inclination to just discover talent and to try to find people who were just better at everything than me. It's, you know, an interesting kind of game you can play with yourself. <laughs> and, you know, if you win, it means you have an exceptionally strong team that, <laughs> that produces better work than you ever could, certainly by yourself or even a legion of you. Um, and so that, I think, was really um, an, an appealing thing early on. And certainly the teams have gotten bigger and more specialized and the problems have become more complex over time. But I think that that, uh, that tendency to be people oriented, um, was, was a pretty early thing for me. Right. And we both spent a little time at Lycos. Um, we found, I, I don't know, I found it, um, very much of its era, you know, this was sort mm -hmm. of the, the dot com uh, boom and bust and Lycos sort of went up and down, uh, accordingly. Uh, but after that, then you went on to kind of work in finance. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what, what that transition was like and, what you learned there. Yeah. This was, this was at uh, Wachovia Bank, 
right? Yeah, that's right. Well, I took four years off uh, after I stayed home for four years with my kids. As you recall, I had three babies in quick succession. <laughs> I like to, I, I, I think it's important to mention that because I think, um, I think people can work through having babies and parenting, um, and people can take time off. And if you're good at what you do and, you know, in particular, if you're, I think, good at managing people, that is, that's a perennial skill. <laughs> you keep say, saying people can take time off. And I think you're being very generous there, but very specifically being a woman in the tech industry, I think yeah. um, that's kind of a big deal taking four years off right yeah. in the heart of your career. Yeah. I remember I came back cause I, you know, you and I stayed in touch, but I, I did not keep up with things. I was very busy with like three kids, four and under. And I came back and I was like, what's an, like what it, I didn't know. <laughs> I just had really unplugged. So I wasn't even necessarily a person who was like, like staying in touch and like up on the latest. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was a bit scary to go back. Um, and I, you know, we had moved to North Carolina and I thought, you know, my youngest is two, maybe I'll start dipping my toe in starting to feel around, see if there's something going on. Cause I just wasn't familiar really with the Charlotte market. And Wachovia was looking for a head of usability, which is what they kind of called interaction and user experience design. And it was just such a great on-ramp for me. You know, I had no experience in banking. Um, people laugh when they hear I'm a banker or like I, I hear I'm a banker. Well, they used to be, yeah, I'm a banker. Like when you work at the bank, that's what people call themselves. I, I like having money. I like spending money, but I'm not intellectually interested at all in money. So it was kind of a running joke with friends and family that I was working at a bank. But, you know, it was my first lesson in how powerful the beginner's mind is. You know, understanding a domain really well is a double-edged sword. Right. Um, you can be a part of the solution, but you also can very easily fall into the trap of being part of the problem. And so I really enjoyed my time at Wachovia. I thought it was an amazing company to work for. Um, we did just fascinating work, for instance, designing for people with um, visual impairment to give them the independence financial independence because they could not get themselves to a branch. And so having access to online banking for them was the difference between feeling independent in control of their finances or feeling dependent on somebody else to do that. And, and those kinds of experiences have really stayed with me. The, there were certain aspects of the banking domain that I, you know, wholesale banking, different kinds of like financial calculators that I still am not sure <laughs> I fully understood. Um, but it was, and I'm very grateful, you know, that they hired me after being home for four years and, and ended up being an on-ramp to, you know, get back into work full time. And I innocently went to a wedding and saw you guys. And the next thing I knew, I was coming to move to California. <laughs> so that must have been a bit of a culture shock. Yeah, no, I remember that. We, um, I was at Google at the time and um, Google was growing incredibly fast and, um, and uh, especially the user experience team. We're, we're growing like crazy. And I thought, you know, who would be perfect over here? So, so what was it like North Carolina to Mountain View? Goodness. Well, you know, it's, um, <laughs> when I was trying to figure out if I initially I was like, I can't move to California. My husband has this awesome job. I have this job that I like. We have three kids. 
they, you know, two of the Meridian school. And my husband said to me, when you get asked to pitch for the Yankees, you don't stay in the minor leagues. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I, I mean, no offense to uh, Wachovia in, in claiming that, but as far as, you know, working with the, you know, the most amazing designers, engineers, et cetera, it was like an amazing opportunity to come out, but pretty scary. I'd spent my whole life on the East coast and I'd only been to California a handful of times. And so, yeah, it was a big deal, but I tell you, I feel like we were very excited about it, certainly professionally. Um, but also personally to have our kids be exposed to a different, environment, um, you know, be in a place where being smart is cool, um, all of the natural beauty that's out here. Um, and this is all beyond what the job provided. Cause obviously when you have a family, you know, you have to think about everyone's needs and not just, you know, follow the professional opportunities. So it was definitely a, a, a package deal for us to, uh, to come out here. And it's been, you know, an, an amazing, um, you know, eight to nine years, since that happened. Um, and now it's weird because my kids think they're Californian, which is so bizarre. <laughs> I feel like I'm this weird extended vacation out here because you know, when you grow, when you, when you grow up and you're like, I'm in, you know, like, I feel like eventually I'll move back, but I may be 97 and still saying that I'm sure I'll go back to New York. You know, <laughs> <laughs> But no, for your kids, it's yeah. part of their core identity. Now they're Californians. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think that's cool. I think it just shows how, you know, you can decide for yourself who you're going to be, right. um, and take the pieces of it that you, um, want and, you know, and kind of conjure up the rest yeah. yourself. Yeah. But I think professionally, you know, it's, it's been a phenomenal experience being out here You know, the people I've gotten to work with at Google and then working on YouTube and now at Facebook, I'm really, really fortunate. Just the problems that these companies are taking on and not shying away from some of the most complicated issues that are facing society or really enduring human needs that I think are well worth our time to try to apply design and research to. And and I now I'm just I'm really I feel very grateful to have worked in an, a number of settings like this and um, and to really appreciate what that means. I do think my kids have a completely skewed understanding of what it means to work in a company because these are the only <laughs> ones they remember. And I'm like, yeah, most companies don't give you free food all the time. They don't have petting zoos. They don't, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but now my son's working in an ice cream shop for making minimum wage. So he has, he has had reality. The, the curtains have been lifted for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bet. I bet. So what do you tell the, the young designers who, who are on your team when they, start, they, they, they must come to you with questions about how can I have a career like yours? I always tell people when you're early in your career, that's the best time to take risks. You know, like you probably don't have a lot of dependencies and if you fail, it can be like a, a like an amazing learning experience that you can embrace and you know, there's no judgment around that. Ho hopefully we all have a society where we allow people to kind of fail in interesting ways and learn from that. But I think in particular, when you're young, it always makes me sad when people play it really conservatively. Now, I have to say that that statement is coming obviously from a position of privilege because, you know, I grew up in a family that was 
had the means to send me to college. And then, you know, I was able to figure out how to get to graduate school. And I felt like I had the freedom to make some of those decisions. And there's a lot of families where, you know, getting a solid job that pays well is, is really important. So I don't want to minimize that. But from my own experience, I feel like if you can take interesting risks and try things that are new and a little bit scary, you know, if you're, if you're a little bit feeling like you are in over your head, you're probably on the right track. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, if you play it too safe, your, your learning curve is going to be kind of much flatter. Um, and which I think, you know, is, is a shame, you know, we have so much potential in, in young designers and engineers and researchers um, to expose themselves to all kinds of really big, interesting, complicated problems and experiences. And so, you know, I tell people, to take risks. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I, one of the pieces of advice or I guess observations that I use most often when people are trying to figure out, should I do this or this? You know, sometimes people are trying to find that perfect situation where they're like, oh, well, 80% of this is okay, but then there's this one thing that's not perfect. Right. And I just tell people, listen, you always trade old problems for new problems. You just need to like your new problems more than your old problems. <laughs> do not do not look for a situation that is without problems. First of all, those are really boring situations. As designers, we are like problem junkies. You know, if, yeah. if, if I... The, the kiss of death for me is if I feel like everything is fixed around me and running well, and then I'm like, okay, what, what do I do next? Like, I don't even, I have an existential crisis because there's no <laughs> problems. <laughs> um, but, you know, just that sense of what are the next set of, you know, challenges that I want to have as opposed to how can I optimize this um, to be like without, without problems, um, I think is really important in particular for women and underrepresented minorities just to, expose themselves to all kinds of interesting experiences early on so that they can really internalize that, that, that notion that they can be in any team and do any kind of work. Because I think, you know, as you get older, it, it just may be harder and harder to take those kinds of risks. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. You know, I also, I think if I look at the way both of our careers have sort of gone over time, that there's this um, embracing of, of, of business, really, of, of mm. the people who run businesses and uh, learning to speak their language mm-hmm. and being fully comfortable and competent, uh, as a designer in, in that world, in that problem solving world you're, you're talking about, but at the same time, reaching over into look, honestly, at the core of every company, there are a bunch of business decisions that are being made. And, and I believe that the skills that we learn as designers, especially around the problem solving and risk taking, and even the the empathy and, and understanding of how our customers are going to engage with products and stuff like that, all of that absolutely applies. But we can't come with our design language and our design skills to the table, right? We have to we yeah. have to we have to we can get a seat at that table, but it has to come from embracing that language and and those those. Uh, those skills and, and all of that, you know, we have to, we have to learn a bit about the numbers. Totally. I mean, I, this is one of the big motivators for me to take this role at Facebook because I've never been particularly uh, tolerant of designers who want to like wash their hands of, <laughs> of the business side. I'd spent most of my career working in consumer products 
But I always thought, well, that's kind of lame. You know, like we should actually care about creating a sustainable business, appreciate where our paychecks come from. And, you know, ultimately all the things that the business is grappling with, they're all design problems, Yep. right? Yep. <laughs> how do you, you know, how do you create this value proposition for customers? How do you make these tools work for businesses and enterprises? Like these are all design problems. And I, I just had this growing sense that, you know, that, that design was doing itself as a practice, a disservice by looking like, you know, we're kind of aloof from, you know, from those issues. And when the opportunity arose to help, you know, join the team that is going to figure out, you know, the long-term monetization strategy for Facebook, I was like, this is my ticket. Like, not only can I, if you'll forgive the pun, put my money where my mouth is, <laughs> um, <laughs> I can bring my consumer sensibility of product quality to a space, you know, meaning you know, B2B and enterprise software, which is not famous for great experience. I can fill out this whole other, you know, aspect of my educational transcript as a designer to say, okay, man, really know how business models work. Now I know how you know, advertising works. Now I know, you know, I'm learning about economics in really fascinating ways in real time. And I feel like I'm just becoming a more mature, well-rounded design leader as a result. And, you know, m a lot of my motivation was to, to prove to people that we could build tools that were really well-crafted and that would create a lot of value for Facebook as a business, but also all the businesses that are relying on Facebook. And that that's just a really appealing opportunity to me. And, and now I feel like over the past few years, this has just become a general, like a, a more widespread conversation that the design community is having in a really positive way, which is you can create the most amazing product in the world, but if you can't create a model that, that, that can persist over time, you know, the design is just going to be, you know, it's going to gather dust on the shelf, which is tragic. Totally. Um, John Slosberg wrote this amazing piece on Quora called Design Doesn't Deserve a Seat at the Table. <laughs> Anyone who's interested in this topic should read that article. It's like I shared it with my team. I've shared it widely because it's just it pulls no punches and basically is like design designers get over yourselves. Like you will not get in that room to make the decisions until you understand all the things that everyone else in that room understands. Right. And it's just, it's a very powerful notion. It's very true. Right. Interesting. I'll put a, I'll uh, put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. You almost certainly have a day full of meetings ahead of you. So I should, I should let you go as, mm. as much as I'd like to ask you a thousand more questions. Where can people learn more about what you're doing? Like I said, I'll link to the Ted talk that you gave maybe, um, yeah. your mags, M A G S at Twitter. Mm -hmm. They should probably follow you on Facebook, though, I guess, right? Yes, you can follow me on Facebook. <laughs> I post a lot on Facebook. I write quite a bit on Medium, yeah. either just stuff that is on my mind. We have, a, we have a publication called Elegant Tools that we're looking to build community and conversation around people who are working on interesting but you know, potentially not quite as much in the limelight products, um, which I think you know, people may find interesting. There's a Facebook group, um, called elegant tools that people can join. I'm just interested in finding, finding more people who are already doing this kind of work yep. and inspiring more people to do it. Because I think the more design can engage in 
variety of interesting, important problems, uh, the better the world is going to be. On that note, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. This has been Presentable, and I'm Jeff Fiend. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or comments or questions or anything, really, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at relay.fm slash presentable or on Twitter at presentable FM. Thanks so much.